Then the Rebshakah stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us and the city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me, come out to me. Then each each one of you will eat of his own vine, each one will eat of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. Do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, spread it before the Lord, and Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria have laid waste to the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, the testimony of your word and your power to save and to redeem and to deliver. God, we, um, we know that that is not something we've merited. It's a gift. It's grace. And so, God, we rest in your grace and your grace alone. God, especially uh, at this Christmas time, may we be mindful of the gift you've given. May we be grateful for it. May we be aware of how costly it was to you, and may we celebrate uh, this Christmas knowing you are with us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Christmas uh, is a season of waiting, is it not? We wait for Christmas Day to arrive, the 25th. No matter how hard our kids may try, it does not come any sooner than uh, the 25th. You can't make it come any faster. We don't like waiting, and so our culture has come up with lots of ways to try to eliminate waiting in other areas. Uh, We didn't like waiting for Black Friday, and so now it seems like all of November is now called Black Friday, which doesn't make sense because Friday, anyway. uh, We don't like waiting at traffic or at the mall, and so thanks to Amazon, we can just push a button and it comes to us. We don't have to wait. Of course, we still have to wait two days, but that time is getting less and less, I'm sure Soon enough, it'll be pushed and it'll be there in like 15 minutes. So we will continue to decrease the amount of waiting in our lives because we don't like 
waiting. Uh, the church historically, we've called this season leading up to Christmas Day, we call this Advent, which means coming, the coming of the Lord. It's a time where we celebrate the coming of Christ, the first coming, when He came to earth some 2,000 years ago. And it's a time we remember back to what it was like for all those generations to wait for the coming of the Messiah, waiting for Him to arrive to earth. But as we celebrate His first coming in Advent, we also look ahead that we are still now waiting for Him to return. It's a season of waiting, waiting for Christ to come and to make all things perfect and right once more. The season of Advent is about waiting. And it's about waiting for more than just the presence you'll open on the 25th. It's about waiting for the presence of the Lord in fullness and how everything will be made right. As presents and celebrations and meals and all the excitement will come in the weeks ahead, we're reminded of the joy that will come when Christ returns. So the question is, what do you do while you wait? While you're waiting for Christ to return, while you're waiting for Christmas Day to, be, to get here, how well do you wait? Are you good at being patient and waiting? When we wait for something good, maybe we have one sense of expectation, but what about waiting for the unknown? Waiting for something that's to come that we don't, we don't know how it will turn out. Waiting for a test result to come back or the next step in a career or a certain life change. Something you know a change is on the horizon, but you don't know how it will go when it comes. How do you do, how well do you handle waiting for that kind of thing in the future? For the month of December, we're looking at the Old Testament book of books of first and second kings, looking back at these Old Testament kings because these were people that pointed forward to the King of Kings, as he's called, Jesus himself. He is a king, but we don't have a, a context for kings so much in our world that, all that much. So we look back to the Old Testament to say, what, what was a king like? What was a good king like? What was a faithful king like? And how are these pointing us to who Christ is? Last week we considered the, the joy, joyfully delighting in the presence of the Lord, like Solomon taught us to do, as he built this magnificent temple. As God was dwelling with His people as Christ dwelled with us. Today I want to jump ahead in the book of First and Second Kings, all the way to Second Kings 18 and 19, where we meet a king who had to wait on the Lord. And their waiting was not for something uh, small or, or even maybe necessarily good. They were waiting to see what would happen about an army that was invading their land. And I want us to see that the, the temptation came while they waited. There was a temptation while they waited and that they had to overcome. We're all waiting on the 25th of December to arrive or whatever else may be coming this month for you. But, but how, what else might you be waiting on in life right now? With your health or the health of a loved one or an aging parent, are you waiting on certain treatments or decisions or procedures or tests? Maybe financially you're waiting on a, a promotion or a little bit more money to come in somehow, some way to, to get a little more before the end of the year or to, to pay for Christmas or pay for taxes or whatever else may be ahead of you. Are there dreams you have of retirement or a car or a home and you're financially you're a little bit concerned as you wait for those things to be settled? 
Maybe it's a relationship in your life and you're waiting for things to, to smooth out that are a little bit rocky or you're waiting for reconciliation or you're waiting for the next step in a relationship, waiting on marriage, waiting on a child to arrive, waiting for a child to come to the Lord. What are you waiting on? The season of Advent is about waiting and it teaches us about waiting in all kinds of areas of life. And it's this story from uh, King Hezekiah in 2 Kings has something to teach us about waiting and waiting well. Waiting in faith. After King Solomon that we talked about last week, that had uh, probably the, the pinnacle of the nation of Israel, things kind of went downhill from there. I'm going to speed through multiple hundreds of years of history to catch you up from Solomon to Hezekiah. But basically, the nation of Israel split in two, became a northern part of Samaria or Israel on the southern kingdom of Judah. And in our passage we're in today, 2 Kings 18 and 19, the, the chapter right before in chapter 17 is where the, the empire of Assyria comes and takes over and destroys the northern kingdom of Israel or Samaria. And now that, that invading empire of Assyria is knocking on the door of Judah, the southern kingdom, threatening to do the same thing in the south that they've just done in the north. And as Assyria begins to attack kind of the, the outer communities, the outer cities of Judah, they send messengers ahead to the capital city of Jerusalem to say, look out, we are on the way and we are coming to destroy your city. What are you going to do while you wait? In the ancient times, to, the way they would take over a, a fortified city many times would be to, to build an, an enormous siege ramp out of, out of land, out of dirt, to come up high on a wall, to either uh, bombard it, ram it, knock it down, or you just climb all the way over it. But there were no bulldozers or cranes, and so this process of building a siege ramp took quite some time. It had to, be, it had to have quite an army of archers to, to guard them as they built this this big siege ramp outside a wall, and they would build up uh, an entire blockade around the city, essentially to starve the city out while they built this big ramp to overtake the city. Long, it's a long and, and, and consuming process. It was effective for an invading army, but it was long and, and very tedious, and so oftentimes the invading army would send a, a messenger ahead and say, listen, your doom is imminent. You're going you're gonna to be conquered either way, so you might as well surrender and just save us all a whole bunch of hassle. And that's the messengers that are sent to Jerusalem in our passage today. Uh, an official from the king of Assyria, uh, an official title, uh, Rabshakeh, which I won't be able to say more than once, so I'm going to call him an official from the land of Syria. He comes and he delivers this message on behalf of, of the king of Assyria, and this negotiating scene outside the walls of Jerusalem is one that would have been pretty amazing to watch. It says that this official, along with two others, were sent, and says in chapter 18, verse 17, with a great army. So I don't know how many that is, but the king of Assyria has enough armed forces that he's able to continue to attack these other cities while also sending in a great army with his officials to Jerusalem to come and negotiate with a show of force that says, we're coming. So you might as well surrender. They send a message, and it's a message for the king of, of Jerusalem, king of the southern kingdom, Hezekiah. And Hezekiah sends his officials outside the walls, 
and they begin to talk. The, the official from Assyria says he threatens them and questions what are they going to rely on for their safety. The question is around trust. 2 Kings 18, 19 and, verses 19 and 20, he says, On what do you rest this trust of yours? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? If you're going to not give in to Assyria, if you're going to rebel against their rule, what are you counting on to save you? And he begins to undermine all the possible things they could, they could trust in. He says, you're going to try to rely on some other kingdom, Egypt? They're not going to help you. They're like leaning on them for support is like leaning on a spear. It's going to go right through your hand. Don't trust in Israel. I mean, in Egypt. He said, are you trying to trust in that, that Yahweh guy we've heard about, the Lord? Oh, yeah, he sent us here anyway. He, we're, we're on his side. He sent us to take you over. And we learn then of, of Assyria's, uh, their, one of their tactics. And one of Hezekiah's officials is like, shh, quit talking so loud. And will you please switch over to Aramaic, the, the language of, uh, of kind of the, uh, the, the way that they would negotiate. He says, quit speaking Hebrew because the people inside the walls can hear you. And the, the, the official says, no, 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 that's my point. I'm, he, they deliberately sent a guy who could speak Hebrew so that not just the officials, not just king, but the whole city would know the threat that is before them. He calls out in a loud voice, starting in verse 28 of chapter 18, speaking not just to the king's officials, but to all the city. And he warns them, and he says, verse 30, Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will, be not, will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. He says, listen, I, I'm, I'm deliberately shouting to everybody on the wall and behind the wall that can hear me. Don't let Hezekiah mislead you. He, he's going to say, trust the Lord. Don't believe him. He can't save you. You might as well surrender to Assyria. And then here's the, the crucial part I want you to consider this morning. He makes the people an offer. He gives them an out. The option before them is you're going to be destroyed. In fact, you're, you're going to be, when we, when we surround you and blockade you and begin to build this wall, you're going to be so starved, he says, you're going to, you're going to eat your own dung, drink your own urine. You're going to have nothing left to eat. You're going to be totally starved. Or you can take our offer. Here's our offer. He begins uh, by describing to them something better, something uh, that, that he could offer them. Verse 31 and 32. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, come out to me, then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of you of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern, and I will come and take you away to a land of your own, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. Do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Do you hear the options he's given the people of Israel? Stay inside your city. Trust in your God. You can like hear his little sass as he's talking about that. Or you can come out. You can live. Come and be with us. And when you do, it's going to be great. There's going to be a land. Essentially, he's, he's restating his own version of the promised land that God had given his people. Instead of saying it flows with milk and honey, he says there's vineyards and olive trees. If you come with us, if you come with Assyria and reject your God, 
then we'll give you all kinds of nice things. It will be glorious. Would you take that offer? If you were the people of Israel, surrounded by an army that's way outnumbers anything you have, if you were the, the people of Jerusalem, would you take that offer? The two options are wait and see what the Lord will do or make peace with Assyria. Give it up. Just go. Preserve your life. Preserve your children's lives. Go and rest in their land. The desire for deliverance, for joy, the desire to live and prosper, they wanted that. And the second option, the, the, the option of going to Assyria, seems like a way to get what you want. But I want to offer you today that that type of solution is a shortcut to what God ultimately has, has for us. And shortcuts are a test of our trust in the Lord. I want you to hear today that as you wait, there's going to be opportunities, things given to you, presented to you, that are shortcuts to what you really want, and they are tests. They are ways to try to pull you away from trusting in the Lord. If you have to wait for anything and wait long enough, eventually you will come up with or somebody will present to you a shortcut. Here is an alternative to waiting. Here is another option from having to sit there and wait for the thing you want. I can give you an answer. I can give you a shorter way to get what you want. You want your kids to prosper. You want you to live long. You want to have, have a, a land flowing with milk and honey. Don't wait on the Lord. Come with us. And 2 Kings, as God's people, they've, they have their, they're in this promised land. And God has promised them, I'll, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And as long as you continue to follow me, a, a king from the descendants of David will sit on the throne. And I, I will take care of you. God has promised them this. But right now, it doesn't look like God's going to answer that. And so there's an option. Here's a shortcut to get the things that you want. God didn't promise the nation of Israel that it would be easy, but He did promise, I've got you. And the same is true for us. For all who believe in Jesus, our future is guaranteed. Advent is a time we remember Christ is coming back and He will make all things right again. He doesn't promise it'll be easy between here and there. He doesn't promise anything about the timing but he does promise the future is guaranteed, just like he had promised the nation of Israel. But along the way, we can take some shortcuts. We can try to make our own path to the things that we really want. Streets of gold and heaven and all those things seem great, but sometimes they just seem too far away. And so we may take shortcuts. One day there will be no more weeping, no more tears, no more pain. All the suffering will be gone. And Many times God offers us grace upon grace. He lets us experience real joys even now. But often we want to shortcut it and try to get to those, more of those things now. Shortcuts are often motivated by fear. Fear of the unknown. Fear of discomfort. Fear of, uh, of any kind of struggle or suffering or pain. And so when something comes up that, that, that invokes fear in us, we look around for our options. Even some that are not so holy. When we feel financial stresses, when we begin to, to be under the pressure of bills or, or whatever else may be, where, where do you look to find rescue? Where do you look for deliverance? Sometimes we have opportunities to make good and healthy financial gains, a promotion, a, a side business, or something else may be. But there's some options before you that are dishonest. 
You can take dishonest paths to cheating either a boss or a company or the government or somebody to get more money. Maybe in relationships to, to, to make them truly flourish, it's going to take lots of hard work. It's going to take time and investment. Or the shortcut is just ditch this relationship and start a new one, no matter how costly it may be. Amber talks about at school how easy and tempting it is for kids to cheat on tests. I want the grade. I want the thing before me. But now that I have access to the Internet and so many other things, I can cheat quickly and get through the process. Why wait on Christmas Day when the presents are already there under the tree? I could just begin to unwrap them now. I could maybe even wrap them back. Nobody would even know. We're, we have a hard time waiting. We have a hard time uh, delaying the gratification. There's a shortcut before us in most of the situations in our lives where we feel struggles and pains and hardships. We can probably find a shortcut to get to what we really want. Last night, Travis Spain and I both ran the, the Rudolph Run, which goes through Quail Run, and we both admitted to each other after the race, if you, if you know Quail Run, it's a figure eight, and the course goes around the outside loop, which means there's a road right through the middle of where you need to go. And Travis and I both got to that spot and thought, that way's faster <laughs> and a little bit shorter. But we know, you know, people would see us and we'd have a bad reputation, so we preserved our, our reputation and we kept it on the path. What if Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem would have taken Assyria's offer? What, what would have come if they would have said, you know what? The option of being starved out of our own city and then eventually destroyed feels pretty bleak. So we'll take you up on it, Assyria. We'll go and be with you. We'll forsake our God. We'll turn our back on God's promises and we'll go with you. We'll take the, the more immediate path to the things we want. We'll take the sure thing. Well, if you kind of just speed through in a little bit of history, Assyria, not long later, not long after this, was destroyed by an, another empire, the Babylonians. Babylonians were later defeated by the Medes and Persians. Persians were later destroyed by the Greeks, Alexander the Great. And the Greeks were later defeated by Rome, and Rome eventually fell. So, you know, that promise of things will go well with you, and you won't die, and, and, and you'll prosper, it would have been a short-lived promise, right? No earthly kingdom can make an eternal promise to, his, to, to anybody. We cannot look to this shortcut and say, this will solve everything we need. It might solve it for today, but it will not solve it forever. Taking shortcuts, promises uh, of pleasure and happiness, prosperity right now that require you to give up on God, that require you to, to turn your back on the promises of God. It's a short-sighted trade-off that's ultimately unwise and unhealthy. It may feel good now, but it is not worth it in the end. Shortcuts are a test of our trust in the Lord. Six times the Ramshakeh uses this word trust in his opening plea to the officials representing King Hezekiah. Who do you trust in? Are you really going to trust that God or are you going to come with us? Here's the shortcut. Here's the alternative. Here's an unholy, an immoral path and it's a faster way to get what you want. Or are you going to trust the Lord. What's the alternative? Consider what the people of Jerusalem and Hezekiah did. Amazingly, verse 36, after this official is shouted out in Hebrew to the whole city of Jerusalem, his alternative, verse 36 says the people were silent as the king had instructed them. 
He had told them, don't say a word, and they did. Verse, chapter 19 goes on that as Hezekiah heard what had been offered, he tore his clothes, covered himself in sackcloth, and went to the house of God. He goes to the prophet Isaiah and asks for his help to plead for God to intervene. He didn't take the shortcut. Instead, he went to God. Isaiah promises a deliverance. And sure enough, by the time the officials get back to their, to the, their invading armies, their army is under attack from other places. And so the rapture again sends messengers back to Israel and says, I know you heard about what's going on, but it's just a little bit of our forces. We've still got plenty of army to come and attack you. So you better decide now which way is it going to go. Verse 10 of chapter 19, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising Jerusalem will not be given to the, into the hand of the king of Assyria. And then he goes on to list other nations that have their own gods and yet they all fell to Assyria. And Rich did an amazing job pronouncing all those nations. So you can go back and listen to the recording of those nations that were delivered that were not delivered, that their God could not save them. Assyria has been attacking land after land, and they all had their gods. And the rapture says, you think, you, think, what, you think your God can save you? What about all these other nations? They've all fallen. Chapter 19, verse 14 and 15. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. Here's the second threat. Here's the second time he's promising that he's going to come and, deliver, uh, come and destroy the city of Jerusalem. And what does he do? Again, Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, spread the letter before the Lord, and Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. The alternative to taking shortcuts is prayer. Shortcuts are a test of our trust in the Lord. Prayer is the practice of our trust in the Lord. Hezekiah proved he was going to maintain his trust in the Lord because he came to the house of God. He came to the presence of the Lord and he prayed. He prayed for deliverance. The primary question all through this passage is about trust. Outside of the six times the Assyrian official initially says trust, three other times in these two chapters, so nine times in, to in total, the question is clear, who are you going to trust? And Hezekiah makes it clear, I am trusting in the Lord our God. He alone is the one I trust in. Especially when we are waiting. We're waiting on God. We're waiting on answers, waiting on peace, waiting on health, waiting on finances, waiting on relationships, waiting on deliverance. Where do you turn for help? Do you turn to a shortcut or do you turn to God in prayer? Prayer is the practice of our trust in the Lord. Simple enough, without even the, this incredible prayer of faith, just the fact that he prayed is evidence of his faith. You can see this great army that is outside his wall at one point. And this, he, they threaten, they kind of tease. We don't know if this is a, they actually know the numbers, but they said, we could even give you horses we could give you 2,000 horses to fight against us. You wouldn't even have enough men to put on the horses to come and fight against us. And we learned by the end that the army that was coming to attack Jerusalem was 185,000. So some 2,000 versus 185,000. This, this is what Hezekiah is facing. And yet, he doesn't give in. He prays. 
He prays to the Lord. Where do you go when the odds are turned against you? When it doesn't look like there is a simple way out. Who do you ask for help? Do you come to the Lord in prayer? How much time do you spend worrying, scheming, planning, strategizing? How much time do you spend in prayer? In the face of fear, do you pray in faith? Do you trust God enough to pray? Or do you live in fear, make decisions motivated by fear, and take the first avenue that seems to open up, even if it's a shortcut that requires giving up on God? Notice how, God, how Hezekiah responds both these times as threats from Assyria. In verse, chapter 19, verse 1, he tore his clothes. He, spread, he, he covered himself in sackcloth. These are symbols not of strength, but of weakness, of recognizing his neediness. Uh, he, he, he's the king. This isn't a very proud moment for him. He's covered in sackcloth, not a, a royal throne, but he's tearing his clothes saying, I need help. There's a, a, a false kind of Christian piety that says, yeah, if, if you're facing something hard, just face it without fear and with faith and be stoic and stand strong. Hezekiah sure didn't do that. He came before the Lord, but he came humbled. He let the gravity of this sink in. There is a very real threat outside our wall and our people could be taken over. And God, if you don't intervene, that's what's going to happen. He says, I have nothing. I have no way to stand. There is no earthly way we can withstand these forces. So he lets the pain of that, the reality of that hit him. In a moment of real sorrow, real pain, real, real grief, do you, do you try to just put on a, a stoic face and say, I'm a Christian, I'm not supposed to be afraid. But he said, no, I, I, I don't have it together. That's how Hezekiah responded. In pain, he comes before the Lord and he comes and he Praise. Much can be said about Hezekiah's first response to the Assyrians, but looking at his second one, we get a, a record of his prayer before the Lord. And what he proclaims back to God is how unique God is. Verse 15, he says, You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Assyria and all those other nations that they destroyed, they ultimately all are subject to you. In verse 17, he says, Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria laid waste to the nations and their lands, and they've cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but they were work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they were destroyed. He says, I know why Assyria could defeat all those nations who claimed they worshiped some god. It was just something they built. It was carved out of metal or stone. Of course that carving of wood could not save them. But he's saying, you, God, you are not like that. You're the one true God who reigns Overall, he calls on God's power and authority. Verse 15, you've made the heaven and earth. It all, all of it is under your creation, your control. And so then he asks for deliverance. Verse 19, so now, O Lord, O God, save us, please, from his hand. He lets his request be made known to God. When you pray, do you pray your request? He said, this is, this is what I have. I'm in ashes. I'm in sackcloth. I cannot save myself. I cannot get the thing I'm waiting on. The thing I need most I'm laying it before God because God alone can give it. I had an Old Testament professor who said, true, the way you know a true monotheist is they pray. If there's just one God, you go to him because he's in charge. If you believe God can help sometimes and sometimes my bank account can help and sometimes this can help, then sometimes you go to God and sometimes you go somewhere else. But if God's the only one really in charge, then you go to God in prayer. 
And why does he think God should deliver him? What's the motive? What, what, why does he want God to, to do it? So that all the nations will know how great King Hezekiah is. Nope. That's not what he prays. Verse 19, So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hands, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. He's praying for the glory of God. Rescue us so that everybody will be clear, God is God alone. There is no other God. Why, why did the people of Israel take Jericho by marching around and blowing trumpets? Why did Gideon win the battle with some 300 men and all they did was blow a trumpet and smash a, smash a, a clay pot? Why does Jerusalem delivered with some 2,000 people against 185,000 people? It's so that at the end of the day, it's really clear it was not about how strong the man was. It's always about how great our God is. Sometimes we're put in a situation where only God can deliver so that everybody may know only God can deliver. Prayer is the practice of somebody who loves the glory of God and trusts that God will defend His glory. God's name will go to the ends of the earth. Somehow, some way, may God be glorified. That's Hezekiah's prayer. It's a prayer for missions. It's a prayer for the glory of God to go beyond our little bubble to the ends of the earth. Like Psalm 67 prays, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. God, please give us good things. Why? Psalm 67 too that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. He prays, trusting God loves His glory, and God's glory will be seen to the ends of the earth. Do you trust God enough to defend His glory and make His name known in the middle of your trials and hardships and struggles, in the middle of your waiting? One who certainly trusted that was Jesus, our Savior. Imagine all the waiting Jesus had to do in life and before his earthly life. He waited for just the right time to come. I mean, if you were Jesus and you knew from before the foundation of the world, there was going to be this time you were going to come and die for people, wouldn't you be anxious waiting for that day? And he waited for just the right moment. He waited for his hour to come over and over again through the gospel. He says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. He's waiting for just the right moment to be crucified. The night before he's Killed. He's in the garden and he's waiting. And what is he doing while he's waiting? He's praying. He is relying on the Lord. He's trusting the Lord. Waiting as he's waiting for his betrayer and his captors to come. When he's up on the cross, he's waiting to take his last breath. He's crying out to God and he is waiting. All the while, he could have rescued himself off the cross. And yet he waited. And he waited for the third day before he would rise. And he is waiting to return. Christ has and will continue to practice perfect patience, perfect waiting, trusting the will of his Father. And the story of Hezekiah at this point reminds us of a moment in the Christmas story. For Hezekiah, 2 Kings 19.6, it says, Isaiah said to them, say to your master, this is just after, after Hezekiah had come asking for his help, says, say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. And that sure sounds a lot like 
Another time, people were warned, warned not to fear. Luke chapter 2, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Both times, the, the command is, do not be afraid. Fear not. And both times, why? Why shouldn't they be afraid? Because salvation is on the way. Fear not. The Lord brings good news, and it is good news of great joy. In Isaiah's case in 2 Kings 19, the Assyrian army, he says, they will not defeat you. They're going to hear a rumor and be turned away. They will come back. They will ask they will warn you, uh, try to intimidate you again, but God will deliver and God will bring glory to his name. At the end, when, when Isaiah prophesies about what's about to come, God is speaking to the, the Assyrians. He says, whom have you mocked? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted the eyes to the heights against the Holy One of Israel? Your messengers have mocked the Lord. God heard the mocking of the Rapshika and the king of Assyria, and God's glory will not be diminished. 2 Kings 19, 25, he's, he's saying, you're, you're looking at this little bitty city and a little bitty army, and you think you are so big and proud, kings of Assyria. He says, have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruin. He says, everything you've done, I've been in charge of what you've been doing. And then he says this, verse 27, I know you're sitting down, I know you're going out and you're coming in, I know you're raging against me. I will put a hook in your nose and a bit in your mouth and I will turn you back by the way which you came. King of Assyria, you think you're so strong marching in here doing what you want? I'm going to treat you like a bull. I'm going to treat you like a horse. I'm going to put a thing through your nose or a bit in your mouth and I'm going to send you right back where you came from. And it's exactly what he did. 2 Kings 19.35, and that night, an angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. An entire army wiped out in one night. God's glory will not be diminished by the king of Assyria or any other nation or any other people. God will get the glory and he brings salvation. Doesn't come always when we want doesn't come necessarily how we expect, but God saves his people. What's amazing about this moment in history is that the Bible is not the only place this is recorded. They're, the Assyrians left behind a historical record of all their conquest, and they described defeating all these different other nations and described defeating this one remnant, uh, one, one outlying city in the nation of Jerusalem. They even painted this beautiful uh, relief painting thing in a wall about how they destroyed this one city in, in, in Israel, I mean, in, in the southern kingdom of Judah. And there is silence in their records about Jerusalem. And all the historians go, this doesn't make sense. They were marching this way. The, the next one they should have taken was Jerusalem. Why didn't they take Jerusalem? Well, I don't know. <laughs> they don't know. God defended his people. It doesn't make sense always, not always how we expect, but Hezekiah's trust paid off. He trusted in the right one. He trusted in the one who could save. He trusted in the one who could deliver. And all the peoples of the earth get to see the glory of God as Hezekiah is delivered and as we are delivered through the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to live in a way that only He could live, and He came to die in a way that only He could die, so that God's glory would be seen in all the earth, and all who believe in Him 
would be saved. What are you waiting on? What are you waiting on? What is, what's the thing before you that, that you're anxious for it to come, anxious for this to arrive, or anxious for it to be resolved? As you're waiting, how are you waiting? And what are you trusting in? The way you know you're trusting in, in the one true God is you'll be a person of prayer. You'll present your request to the Lord. You'll plead for God to defend His glory. And as you pray, He just might fill you with joy. The Syrians had offered, come, have wine and drink of cisterns and all this prosperity. But Psalm chapter 4, verse 7, the psalmist says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. Let's pray. Father, thank you for good news of great joy that will be for all peoples. God, thank you for bringing salvation, for bringing deliverance through your Son to rescue us from our sin. Fathers, we think back to the way that you rescued the people of Israel thousands of years ago as Hezekiah prayed. God, may we be a people of prayer. May we be a people of trusting you, of practicing that faith, practicing that trust day in and day out before you in prayer. God, we confess our, our prayerlessness to you. We confess a, a heart that is much, much more prone to try to solve our own problems and scheme our way into our own solutions and take shortcuts when we need to. And so God, we lay that before you and say, we, we need your deliverance. We need your rescue, your salvation. And as long as you delay until you return, God, we will wait with patience as we pray. God, bless this Christmas season as we celebrate your coming, as we anticipate your return. May we, may we wait in faith. In Christ's name I pray.